Welcome everyone to this episode of Why We Plan. My name is John Brown. I'm the founder of BEI. And with me today is a longtime uh, friend of BEI and friend of BEI advisors, Kelly Fennell. Kelly, welcome. Thanks, John. Good to be here. So uh, just immediately before this podcast began, I said, Kelly, what do you want to talk about? And he said, I want to talk about dogs. <laughs> I said, what? Exactly he, said, right. he said, well, I want to talk about investment, the investment banker's approach to helping an owner sell an exodus business and compare that with using an ESOP to allow an owner to exit the business. And do you want to give your analogy or your metaphor yeah. right now? So I don't want to steal your thunder. So it's all yours, Kelly. So John said they're different animals, right? Yeah. And I said uh, ESOP investment bankers and ESOP consultants are the same animal. They're just different breeds of the same animal. So one is a golden retriever and one is a collie. You know what? I would almost agree with that. I would say maybe you're the golden retriever, but the investment banker is a German shepherd, maybe, or... A bulldog. A bulldog. Uh, something like that. But at any rate, so tell us, uh, that's interesting comparison because they're, they are very different approaches to selling it, transferring a business. But I think they're also motivated by different reasons in the mind and the heart of the owner. Yes. So the place to start, I think, is that every owner recognizes that in an ESOP transaction, he or she is at a disadvantage. The buyer in an ESOP transaction is the trustee, and the trustee has an attorney on its side that does nothing but ESOP transactions. They're very knowledgeable and experienced. And they also have a valuation advisor who is a finance whiz and the business owner is over here potentially by him or herself or maybe with his or her attorney who is inexperienced in the world of ESOPs. So business owners wanna level that playing field. So they want someone representing them that has the same depth of experience and expertise as the trustee team has. And so they know- So let me interrupt you for just yeah. a second because the listener is going to say now who are advisors, well, doesn't the owner hire the trustee? Doesn't the owner start this process by getting that team together? And you're saying not really? No, they absolutely hire the team. But once that team's hired, the primary ERISA fiduciary obligation of the trustee team is to be independent of the business owner. Even but though the owner hired them? Even though the owner has the privilege of paying all of the fees, <laughs> yes. the uh, most important legal requirement is that this be an arm's length transaction. And the DOL uh, will look over this and if there are any indicators that it wasn't an arm's length transaction, then the business owner is the primary fiduciary involved in this process could have problems. So 
Yes, the business owner is going to hire the trustee. The trustee is going to hire its own advisors after that. And so now the business owner potentially is at a disadvantage. They have their lawyer who may have done one ESOP 20 years ago and is at a disadvantage compared to the knowledge and experience of the trustee team. So they know that they need help. And so they've got these two different breeds of advisors that they can go to for that help. They've got ESOP investment bankers, and then our approach to the market is as ESOP consultants. So an ESOP investment banker is probably someone who was in the traditional M&A investment banking business mm -hmm. and thought, wow, we have to do a lot of work. We make great fees, but we've got to do a lot of work to earn those fees. We have to develop relationships with potential buyers. So we have to spend years identifying private equity firms that are in various markets, in certain industries, in certain business sizes, and we have to establish a relationship of trust with those PE buyers. And then we're gonna go through a process of creating a SIM and doing a controlled auction and negotiating and having a deal. And so a smart investment banker might say, if I could make the same fees but not have to do any of that, that would be a much more profitable business model. And so there are lots of people. Most of our competitors work as ESOP investment bankers. I was just in a session at the BEI conference where an, invest, an ESOP investment banking firm spoke, and they said in a typical transaction, <clears throat> uh, the total fees are between $1.5 and $2 million. And they said, and most of that is ours. The rest of it goes to the lawyers and to the accountants. In our approach, the typical fee is about 500,000. So one third to one quarter less for the exact same quality of work and tremendous savings. Mm -hmm. I also think that as ESOP consultants, we're in the position to give much more objective advice. Investment bankers don't get paid unless a transaction closes. So it's almost like a real estate agent. If I don't close the deal, I don't get paid. We operate differently than that. Our fee's not a contingent fee. So we get paid monthly throughout the transaction. And so if we come to a point where we think it would be in the best interest of the business owner to stop the process and call it off mm -hmm. because they're not gonna get what they wanna get from the trustee, then we've been paid for the work that we've done to that point. Sure. And we can say stop. Has that ever happened to you? You know, it has, it's rare, John. It's mm -hmm. very rare because we set the business owner's expectations uh, on the front end by doing a feasibility analysis. And so we all know what we expect to get mm -hmm. on the front end. So it's rare, but it has happened. The other uh, aspect of this, I think, is uh, an aspect of integrity. Um, as an attorney, when you were in practice, you mm -hmm. charged for your time. And investment bankers are being paid disproportionately for the time that they're invested. 
And they might justify that by saying, well, we're working on a contingent basis, but as you pointed out, it's extremely rare for them not to get paid. So the fact that it's a contingent fee is really not completely honest. Well, because they almost they're almost they're ninety five percent sure they're going to get paid. Yeah, and, and especially in today's environment. Yes, with available capital, yes, liquidity that so many buyers have. Versus, you know, maybe 2008 when nobody was buying and selling, but you also probably weren't doing as many ESOPs. We weren't doing nearly as many ESOPs, and the ESOPs <coughs> that we did were all seller financed. You couldn't buy, borrow money yeah. from a bank for any purpose, let alone something as esoteric and misunderstood as an ESOP. <laughs> and so yeah. everything we did, we in uh, 09, so the first full year of the uh, Great Recession, we did four transactions, and we typically do eight. So it's about half as many. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, from a BEI advisor's perspective, many of the inv ESOP investment banking firms have created a 1042 reinvestment product, and so they're going to steer the client towards their product. But the BEI advisor's interest is to capture those assets for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they probably don't want to be in a position where they're going to bring in a partner on this transaction who has a conflict of interest and is going to recommend their investment product at the end of the process. Yeah. And, but, you know, one thing, almost all of the exit plans our members are involved with the corporation is an S corporation. So I realize you can convert and you can become a C corporation, but that uh, would meet with a lot of resistance, at least from our advisors. I agree. Um, and most of our transactions are S corp transactions, which as you're pointing out, mm -hmm. don't qualify for 1042. The investment bankers, almost all of their transactions are C corp. Yeah. transactions. And so they're going through that process and doing the financial engineering and changing the company from a pass-through entity to a C-Corp so that they can then right. do the 1042 rollover into their product. So from the uh, BEI advisor or just a, a, an advisor who's not a BEI member, should they tend to favor one form of corporate entity versus the other? I mean, or would they tend to just go with the flow, whatever the corporation is, that's the way it's going to stay, and we're just going to go through with the ESOP or a third-party sale? I think it's all facts and circumstances. Most of our clients don't want to go through the additional complexity of 1042. Mm-hmm. So most of our transactions are for S-Corps. But maybe a couple of times a year, we're working on one now in Atlanta where 1042 is a, a critical component of the transaction. And so we're going to go through the process of reorganizing. It's now an LLC, so we'll incorporate, mm -hmm. not make an S election. So the transaction will happen as a C, mm -hmm. and the owner will elect 1042. Does the, does the company have to be a corporation or can it be an LLC in order in, in qualify, 
qualified to become an ESOP? Can has to be a corporation. Okay. And so it can be either an S or a C, but it has to incorporate. So probably in a typical year, 60 or 70% of the companies that we begin the process with are an LLC. Every once in a while, we'll have a partnership. And so it's a, in every transaction has pre-transaction planning that's mm -hmm. involved. And part of that planning in those situations is to do a reorg and incorporate, and it's a, a tax-free process. So, Ke Kelly, one, I guess one question maybe an owner would have would be along the lines of, well, the investment banker uh, told me that they can go out and, and get some, you know, indications of a likely sale price by giving a little bit of information about my company to one or two or three or four different uh, uh, potential buyers. But you can't do that with an ESOP because the, the, the ESOP is going to be owned, is going to own the company stock. So uh, how do you work with a business owner and a company to get a good idea of the likely design of an ESOP, what the value is going to be, uh, what the issues might be before you create all of this? We do all of that in the feasibility study process. And so what's so that? It is a process where we gather an obnoxious amount of financial information and create a data room. So the same kind of pre-planning process you went through with your clients when you were going to do an M&A transaction. Right. Get all the information. And then unlike the typical law firm where you've got great people and all the legal rules, we also have financial analysts. So you know, more like a valuation firm. Mm -hmm. And so in our feasibility study, we, at, we answer the four key questions every business owner has. What's an ESOP trustee gonna pay for the stock that I sell? So that's an ESOP specific valuation. Our lead analyst has been with me 16 years. He's 36 years old. This is the only job he's ever had. He's read thousands of ESOP valuation reports and we're gonna be within 5% of the ultimate purchase price. Uh, we're that experienced. So, so do most ESOP consultants do a feasi feasibility study, or is, is that something that you do and most others don't? No, almost every ESOP consultant and an ESOP investment banker is going to start with a feasibility study. Okay. That's just standard operating procedure uh, within the ESOP community. The business owner has to know what the sales price is going to be, what the terms are going to be, how much cash they can expect it close via a loan from a bank, and how much will be in the form of a seller note, a promissory note issued by the company to the selling shareholder, and very importantly, what the terms of that seller note are going to look like. And so since you and I last talked, interest rates have skyrocketed. I know. Back then, I was telling business owners to expect a 10% return on their seller note since it's subordinated debt. Mm -hmm. Now it's 14%. And so many business owners look at that and think, you know, initially I had a negative attitude about seller notes, but if I can get a 14% return on an asset that I have a high level of confidence in, that's a heck of a deal. Yeah. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk about stock appreciation rights plan, which is something that would just be available for the company's key employees. And then very importantly, in the feasibility study, we're going to talk about corporate governance. 
how's the company going to operate after the transaction? So, it, so this is all great information. If I'm an advisor listening to this podcast, and I'm not a BEI member, so I, I don't know who you are. Okay. I think most of our members know, know you well and work with you. Um, what kind uh, and so they may have a client who's expressed an interest in these stuff without knowing a lot about it, but it sounds great because I don't have to pay any taxes type of knowledge. Right. Uh, if they contact you, how would that first initial conversation go? What are you prepared to provide to the advisor to assure, give some assurance to the advisor that an ESOP indeed makes some sense and they should work with you? Yeah. Well, the first thing is we only market through advisors. So we don't ever market directly to business owners. ESOPs <clears throat> are so complex that even the smartest business owner at the end of the process is going to say, I don't get all of this and I need to rely on this trusted advisor who I've worked with for decades to tell me whether or not this makes sense. So we're always marketing through advisors. And so a lot of times we'll get a call from an advisor and they'll say, I have a company with $20 million of revenue and $4 million of EBITDA and they have 100 employees, and this is the industry that they're in, and they have these six questions. And we'll spend an hour in a video conference and uh, answer all of their questions, help them uh, make the pitch with the owner to have a call next with the advisor, the business owner, and us. Mm -hmm. And um, then we'll keep the advisor involved in every step of the feasibility analysis. And that's not just good for the advisor, that's good for us. Sure. Because we're gonna educate this advisor on all of the benefits of an ESOP and then they're gonna become a great ongoing referral source for us. Interested, so that's the ESOP side of things. And I guess from the investment banker side of things, the relationship is very different. It uh, is, we're gonna have an ongoing relationship with the company. Um, and we're not a 50-person organization where we're going to have a junior member of the team working on this. As you know, uh, I've been a member of the Tennessee Bar for 41 years. My partner is an attorney and has an LLM in tax. And so the two of us are going to work on every transaction I'm going to do from the feasibility study through the negotiation of the LOI, mm -hmm. and then he's gonna take it the rest of the way. He's much better at process than I am. I think at the age of, of 68 and having done this for 41 years, I've lost my, I was never patient, but I think whatever little bit of patience I once had is gone, and I'm not good at process anymore. Uh, and so he's great at it, and so, they're gonna have a senior person involved in the entire process, and we're gonna have a relationship after the transaction. Investment bankers don't do that, so we're gonna provide ongoing employee communication, um, an annual meeting, and quarterly uh, bulletins that we send to the employees on the company's masthead, electronic bulletins. Mm -hmm. um, and we're gonna help them during that first two-year period in which they're making the transition to being ESOP owned 
and dealing with a plan administrator that speaks a different language from them, the ESOP trustee, and the trustee's valuation firm. So we're gonna stay involved to help make that process of transition as painless as possible. Wonderful, anything else I need to ask you? Because I know you've got the answers. <laughs> nope, but once again, I've enjoyed being with you. Yeah, It's always fun. It's always fun and thank you for being at this year's annual conference. I enjoyed it. Thanks.